We're embarking on a new series, folks. Uh, this one is simply called Celebrate. We're going to take a look at God's holidays in the book of Leviticus, specifically chapter 23. And uh, I, I got to tell you, I have never, ever in all my ministry years preached a series on the festivals of the Old Testament. But I'm kind of excited about this and some of the great things that uh, I'm learning because I love holidays. I, I think most people really do. Holidays involve family and friends and usually involve good food and, and times together. They celebrate either a religious rite or a special day, or maybe they celebrate a, a national moment of history or the birth of what became a hero in our nation's history. And then there are some holidays that are just thrown in for wild and crazy moments, like Groundhog Day or April Fool's Day. I mean, you know, no big moments, but just sort of fun and crazy kinds of times. My favorites, there are two, Thanksgiving and Christmas. I suspect those are favorites for many of you. You see, I think there's a longing in all of us to have something to celebrate. Historian Marvin Rosenthal wrote, he said, There is not a nation anywhere, even among the most primitive of peoples, that does not have its unique days of special celebration. And, and I, I believe there's an explanation for that. I think God placed in our soul the desire to celebrate. To put it another way, God wired us to love a holiday. Now, why do I believe that? Well, first of all, I believe it because we are created in the image of God, and our God is a God of celebration. As a matter of fact, our word holiday evolved out of the old English expression, holy day. And in Leviticus chapter 23, God spelled out seven holy days or festivals for the Jewish nation to celebrate. The chapter opens with these words. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Now, did you notice that? It's easy for us to gloss right over that. God didn't say these are Jewish feasts or these are your national holidays. He said these are my appointed feasts. These are God's holidays. They belong to him, and that makes them both unique and significant. And if you didn't catch it the first time around, it's repeated in verse 4. And anytime something is repeated like that, it is for emphasis' uh, sake. Don't miss this. Verse 4, these are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word feast, what's the first thing that comes to my mind and yours? Food, of course. Food comes to my mind quite a bit, but it certainly comes to mind when I hear the word feast. But the word feast here really, really doesn't capture the moment. This is not the best of translations. The word here would be better translated appointed times. The timing and the purpose of these festivals has been carefully orchestrated by God himself. These are not random moments thrown onto the calendar. God didn't say, you know, these people are going to wander through this desert for 40 years. I think I'll throw in a handful of holidays to break up the boredom. That's not the purpose. These tell God's story. They reveal God's plan and in truth, they prophetically point to the person of Jesus. Here's the cool thing about all these feasts and festivals. We're going to see Jesus in every one of them. That's what makes them worthy of our time and study. And that shouldn't surprise us either. Because Jesus enjoyed a celebration. 
After all, his first miracle took place at the wedding feast at Cana of Galilee where they ran out of wine and Jesus turned the water into wine to spare the bride and groom a great deal of embarrassment. Jesus faithfully attended the Jewish feasts and festivals all throughout his life and ministry. He was an honored guest at multiple banquets in that day and time. On one occasion, he fed 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. On another occasion, he fed 4,000 men, not counting the women and children. And the Bible says that everybody had everything they wanted. Now, we gloss right past that because when we sit down to a meal, we always eat as much as we want, maybe sometimes more than we should. But in that day and time, people didn't have all they wanted. And when, when Jesus took those five small cracker-sized loaves and those two fish and he fed 5,000 or probably closer to 15,000 people and the Bible says everybody had everything they wanted to eat and they had leftovers, I'm telling you, that was a feast and a festival. You see, I think Jesus loved doing those kinds of things. The Bible says the children love to come to Jesus. What I, what I found is that kids are a great judge of character. Kids are not drawn to gloomy Gus characters in life. They are drawn to the people who just exude joy. As a matter of fact, I think Jesus smiled a lot. We always see these pictures of him sober and somber, but I love the pictures of him laughing because I think he probably had the most infectious laugh that just drew people to him because of his joy in celebrating. But did you notice that God didn't say that these were Jewish festivals, they were his festivals that point to this joy that we have in Christ. And as a preamble to these seven feasts, he reminds us that there is a weekly feast to be observed. It's the concept of honoring the Sabbath. Now, there were seven days in the creation story, and on the seventh, God rested. Not because God was worn out, but because he was setting a pattern for humanity to follow. In verse 3 of chapter 23, it says, There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, the, the Sabbath day celebration is, is like a weekly picture of these great seven feasts. Every seven days we do this Sabbath kind of a concept. And, and when the, the people of of Israel, who were coming through the wilderness, they had received the law. These five books, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were penned by Moses, given to him by God, and given to the people all at the same time. So they're reading Genesis chapter 2 at the same time they're reading Leviticus chapter 23, because the story of creation figures greatly into this story that we find in the 23rd chapter. God is communicating to the Hebrew nation and to us as well that this is not some new burdensome rule. This has been a part of life from the very beginning of time. God marked creation's completion by setting aside the seventh day as a day of rest and holiness. And his pattern of work followed by rest has been given as a gift to humanity. Now, it's, it's really interesting to me, folks, that we have never found a better pattern than a seven-day week, although there have been other patterns tried throughout history. 
We keep returning to this seven-day week. And we have never found a better resting period than one in seven. It seems to be the best pattern physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for our person to be restored and refreshed. But keep in mind that this is not the Sabbath day. (laughs) Whenever I hear people talk about Sunday being the Sabbath day, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard to me. Okay, and, and I know what people mean, and we do meet in the spirit of the Sabbath, but this is not the Sabbath day. No, this is the Lord's day. It is the first day of the week, and the reason we meet on this day instead of Saturday is because it marks the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. Very early in the morning, they came to the tomb. You see, this day, it would have taken something cataclysmic, folks, to move the early Jewish worshipers from worshiping on the Sabbath to worshiping on a Sunday morning, and that cataclysmic moment was nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We honor the spirit of the Sabbath, but we worship on the day of resurrection. Ah, what a wonderful day it is to celebrate, and what a great reason to celebrate. So why seven festivals? In Leviticus. I'm giving you some introductory material here that we won't go through for the rest of the series, but it's important to know. Why seven festivals? Well, the number seven is pretty unique. Uh, in nature, it's, it's unique. There are seven major notes in the music key. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, and then back to do. Seven major notes. There are seven colors in the rainbow, three primary and four secondary. There are seven systems of crystals. If you're looking for crystals, they are going to be one of seven systems. There are seven directions, right, left, up, down, forward, back, and center. And if you have seven items, seven circular items of all equal size, six will perfectly and completely surround the seventh, as you can see in the picture. So if you want to try it, go home, take out seven drinking glasses out of your cabinet, form them, put the seventh one in the middle, and, and it will fit perfectly. Only, only figure that will do it that way is this seven of equal circles. And if you get excited about that, think about getting a life, all right? <laughs> Seven is even more significant when we come to Scripture than it is in nature. It is a number that represents completeness, and the number seven occurs 735 times in the Bible, 54 times in the book of Revelation alone. In Pharaoh's dream, there were seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. There were seven lamps on the candelabra in the tabernacle and the temple. In the book of Revelation, we read about seven churches, seven angels to the churches, seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven seals, seven thunders, seven plagues. The gospels record that Jesus performed seven miracles on the Sabbath day, the seventh day. It is significant. It means completeness. And while we won't take all seven feasts in the order that they appear, we will explore every one of them over this next five weeks as we lead up to our celebration of Easter because they are unique. And we're going to see Jesus in every one of them. This morning, we'll take a look at the Feast of Weeks. In Leviticus chapter 23, verse 16, this is what we read. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of the new grain to the Lord. From, when, where, from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast as a wave offering of the first fruits to the Lord. On that same day, you do proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. 
Now notice, this festival took place seven sevens, seven weeks after the end of the first fruits celebration of the barley harvest. And then you add one day, making it a total of 50 days. Which, if you add one day, make it 50 days, that, that feast was held on a Sunday. Now, now, don't lose sight of that. That comes back here in just a few minutes. It was held on a Sunday. In the Old Testament, it was called the Feast of Weeks because there were seven weeks leading up to that point in time. But when we get to the New Testament, it's Greek, and it's known by a different name, Pentecost. Whenever you read in the New Testament about the Feast of Pentecost, it's the same thing as the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, sometimes even called the Feast of the Harvest because they celebrated the wheat harvest at that time. And what was unique on that particular day is that they brought loaves of bread with yeast in them. Yes, they had the other sacrifices. Yes, they took up an offering for the poor like they did at other festivals. But the unique thing about the Feast of Weeks were these two loaves of bread that were waved before the altar of God. And you say, well, why, why yeast bread? It's a really good question. Because you say yeast most of the time was symbolic of, of sin and wickedness. As a matter of fact, God said yeast will not be burned on the altar of sacrifice. So these loaves could not be placed on the altar. They had to be waved in front of the altar of God. Most of our sacred moments, if you recall, are celebrated with unleavened bread. But, but, but this is yeast bread. Why? Well, because there's a real beautiful picture here. It is this picture of God providing for his people. This is the blessing of our daily food. It is the blessing of the staff of life. It is the basic provision that God gives us to live out our lives. And we live out our lives on a day-to-day -day basis as sinful people, not as perfect people, not as good people. We live out our lives as sinful people. And so the yeast loaves waved before God is like us waving our lives before him saying, thank you for giving us the very basic needs of our lives. But the meaning goes a lot deeper than just bread and celebrating harvest. The rabbis of old said that it was on this day, the day that the Feast of Weeks was celebrated, that God gave the law on the mountain of Sinai. God came down on the mountain, spoke his law. The people were scared to death. They said, Moses, don't let him talk to us anymore. Let him talk to you, and then you tell us what he said. God spoke the Ten Commandments from the top of the mountain and gave the people a new beginning. You see, these people had just come up out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery where they had been indoctrinated in everything Egyptian. They knew the Egyptian culture, the Egyptian language. They knew the Egyptian idolatry. And God says, I'm going to give you a new start. Here's a new beginning. I'm going to create you a new nation. And out of you, I will bless all the other nations of the earth through the person of the Savior. And here's your beginning point. I'm carving you out to be unique. This is your new start. And he gave them the Ten Commandments, to set them apart. Now, the, the older I grow, folks, the more profound the Ten Commandments become. Ten simply stated words or phrases that will profoundly change our lives if we'll follow them. They are not some arbitrary set of rules. They are God's truth. They form a moral staff of life. These are basic fundamental principles of life that transcend time, culture, and generation. They are a suitable foundation for any race, nation, or people. And these guidelines provide us rules for living. And, and if we could keep them, 
If we could keep the Ten Commandments, it would solve all of our relational problems in society and around the globe. They were just so profound. John Quincy Adams, our sixth president, wrote, The law given from Sinai was a civil and municipal as well as a moral and religious code. It contained many statutes of universal application, laws essential to the existence of men in society, and most of which have been enacted by every nation which ever professed any code of laws. Vain indeed would be the search among the writings of secular history to find so broad, so complete, and so solid a basis of morality as the Ten Commandments lay down. He's right. You can't get any code of morality better than these. It is the basic. It's the staff of moral life that God gave us. But now here's, here's what I find incredibly interesting. If that's what God did in the Old Testament, when God started again in the New Testament, on the first feast of weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on that first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a new beginning, a new birth, a new start, and it's called the church. That was when the church came into existence. Do, do you see what God is up to here? In the Old Testament, he's saying to his people, I'm going to start you brand new. In the New Testament, he says, I'm going to start you brand new again. Under the Old Testament, it was the light and the morality that we had, a guiding light, a moral foundation with the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the church is that same thing, a guiding light and a moral foundation. How great is our God that takes this same holiday and has two great beginnings, and these two beginnings are like bookends on the life of Christ. You say, well, aren't we grace instead of law? I mean, I thought the New Testament was all about grace and the Old Testament was, was all about law. Don't go there. That, that's, that's oversimplifying the situation. Yes, we preach a message of grace, but the message of grace without the law is an incomplete picture. First of all, the law was necessary to point out our sin. If, I, if there's no standard, I don't know if I'm doing anything wrong. If I never look at God's word, I could conclude that I'm, I'm not too bad of a guy. My thoughts, aren't, my thoughts aren't so bad. I look at my life, I look at other people's life, and well, maybe my life isn't, you know, maybe it's pretty good compared to other people. Maybe God is lucky to have me on his side. You see, if I never look at the mirror of God's word, I could easily conclude that. But one glance in the mirror of God's law, and I see his expectation, and I see my failure, I see his righteousness, I see my brokenness, and suddenly I realize, I'm not so good after all. I need a Savior. You see, you, you, you can't come to this message of grace without also understanding what God's expectations are and how badly I have failed to keep them. And so the law was necessary for us to understand our need for a Savior. If I don't know I'm sick, I won't go to a doctor. If I don't know I'm a sinner, I won't go to a Savior. The truth is we are all broken people in need of grace, but we won't know that we need the grace without the law to point out our sin. It's always been that way. And God has always been a God of grace. We mistakenly conclude that he was angry in the Old Testament, but patient in the New, that he was hateful and mean in the Old Testament. He's loving and kind in the New. That's not true. God didn't somehow change during that 400 years between the end of the Old and the beginning of the New Testament. God didn't mellow out. 
He's always been a God of grace. As a matter of fact, the Ten Commandments begin with a statement of grace. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the bond of slavery. Do you understand what that's saying? God says, here's my gift to you. I have rescued you out of slavery. Not because the people deserved it, but because God loved his people and wanted to give them a brand new beginning. That's a gift. And that gift brought joy. And that's the definition of grace. A gift that makes one joyful. They could not have freed themselves. Only God could intervene to do that. And when they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they celebrated. And so these two moments, the Old Testament law, the New Testament birth of the church, both at the Feast of Weeks, point us to the one who really is the important one, Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how does it do that? Remember what they did? They waved the loaves before God as an offering of gratefulness because he provided the staff of life, the the most basic of provision, bread. On the day after Jesus fed the 5,000, the crowds wanted to come and make him a king by force, saying, you know, hey, listen, yesterday he took five cracker-sized loaves of bread and, and two small fish, and he fed a whole lot of us. I think that's the kind of guy we need for a king. And Jesus, I don't want any part of that. And then he answered their queries in John chapter 6, verse 35. He said, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Pointing ahead to the cross, I'm going to lay down my life so that you might have life. I am the basic. I am the foundation. I am the staff of life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. What powerful words. Do you realize, folks, that when Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began hungry so that we might be filled? And he ended his life thirsty on the cross so that we might be satisfied. The living water the bread of life, the one who has come to fulfill the feast of weeks. They say, well, what do I do with this? Well, real quickly, let me just leave you with three important lessons quickly. First one is simply this. There is no life without him. There is no life without him. In a day when so many want to make it seem as if there are multiple roads leading to the same spiritual place, Jesus declares otherwise. He and he alone is the bread of life. When you and I celebrated the Lord's Supper just a few minutes ago, it was like our own personal feast of weeks. We're not waving the bread, but we were ingesting the bread as if to say, I need his life, I need his love, I need his strength, I need his wisdom, I need his forgiveness, I need his presence in my life every day. The bread of life. Number two, we have no spiritual life without faith in him. There's no life without him, but there's no spiritual life in us without our faith in him. You see, it's not about our goodness. It's about his grace. We come to him on his terms, not ours. 
It's not about what we can do. It's about what he has done for us that we could not do ourselves. Therefore, the only way you can approach the bread of life is by following his word and example through faith and trust in him. Cling, hold on to the bread of life. At the end of World War II in Europe, there were a lot of orphans due to the war who had been scattered out, no shelter, no food, no clothes, and the Allies gathered them up, set up camps for them, had tents, they had lots of food, uh, they gave them new clothes. I mean, the kids were in better shape than they'd been throughout that whole time of the war, and yet, for all of the good things that they were doing, the kids slept poorly at night. They were restless, fitful, they cried. And the soldiers didn't know what it was, and so they brought in some army doctors and some army psychologists to try and figure out what the problem was. And finally, one psychologist says, they're going to bed fearful. Give them a piece of bread, not to eat, but to hold on to, to put on their pillow, to put on their bed, something. to Let them have a piece of bread when they go to bed at night, because what they're thinking is that when they wake up in the morning, all this may be gone, and they won't have anything. And so... They started giving out a, a slice of bread to every child, and do you know what? It worked. Knowing that when they woke up, that that slice of bread, that staff of life would be there. They were not gonna go hungry in the morning because they had a piece of bread in their hand or on their pillow to get them through the night. Can I remind you that during the tough times of your life, when, when the bottom seems to fall out of your life, when everything seems to be going wrong, when you are filled with fear and anxiety, would you hold on to the bread of life? Put your faith and your trust in him because he's the only one that's going to be able to get you through. That's what God is trying to say. That's what Jesus is trying to say. I, I'm the foundation. I'm the bread of life. You can trust me. Last thing, we have no eternal life without his grace. God has always been a God of grace, and it's only by his grace that we anticipate eternal life with him. So don't ever lose sight of where you're headed and who's going to get you there. It's not going to be something fancy in the, in the journey, but when we get home, it'll be beyond our wildest imagination. So don't, don't lose sight of where you're going and the bread of life that will get you there. On the sixth day of the ill ill-suited, ill-fated mission of Apollo 13. The astronauts need to make a critical course correction. They were actually in the lunar module that, that didn't go down the moon. You know, NASA always claimed that this was their successful failure. Getting these three guys home when everything just seemed hopeless. They needed to make this course correction. It was going to be a 39-second burn of the engines and... Uh, James Lovell was going to have to steer the aircraft manually to keep it where it needed to go so that they would not bounce off the atmosphere and back out into space and be lost forever, but it would get them in on the right trajectory to be saved. And so he knew that he had to keep his eyes on something, and there was a small window inside the lunar module, and as he looked out that window, what he saw was Earth, home, where they were headed. And he knew that if he could hold the spacecraft steady during that 39-second burn and keep the earth in the center of that window, that they just might get back on course. It was an agonizing 39-second burn. But when the rocket shut down, in the very center of that window was the moon, or was the earth, 
the moon behind them where they had come from and they were headed home. And you know the rest of the story. They made it home safely. They never lost sight of where they were headed. Can I remind you this morning, don't lose sight of where you are headed. Want to make it home? Cling to the bread of life. He's the only one that can get you there. I don't know if you know Jesus as your Savior. I sure hope you do. I'm going to be down front here. You can come during the song. You can talk to me afterwards. I, I just don't want you to leave this morning without having that settled in your heart and mind. I'll be glad to help you figure out how you need to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of your life. But as a Christian, all of us here need to walk more certainly, more faithfully, more trustingly with the bread of life himself.